You're listening to Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, the gospel roots of rock and soul. I'm Cece Winans. By the mid-20th century, gospel music was a force in America. It had evolved beyond African-American spaces, homes, churches, and revivals. And it was capturing the attention of record companies and audiences across the nation. Fame and money were on the table for the most talented gospel artists. Sam Cooke's emergence as a soul singer epitomized this moment. The profound fact that a black gospel singer could cross over to become America's biggest pop star was just the half of it. An equally profound emotional response, rife with confusion and betrayal, was the other half. Performing and selling music for anyone but the Lord and his followers was not okay with some of these musicians' devout audiences and families. Was it worth forsaking the values and virtues they were raised with to embrace this new success? After all, wouldn't these new opportunities take them to the highways and hedges to spread the good news? Who were they singing for? These were heart-wrenching times for gospel musicians and their audiences. A few years after going over to pop, Sam Cooke decided to rejoin the Soulsters, the gospel group he became famous with. And he did it in some instances, and the audience would boo him off the stage. Joyce Jackson, a music scholar at Louisiana State University, says gospel audiences shunned Sam Cooke the way they felt he shunned them. Because they felt that maybe that he was not living the life he was supposed to have been living or the life he was singing about in his songs. So they didn't accept him coming back to gospel after he had left and gone to the secular world. Gospel singer and pastor Donald Gay grew up with Sam in Chicago. He told us his friend channeled his pop music riches to support the gospel musicians who fostered him. He even bought the Soulsters a tour bus. But for some Christians, he was beyond redemption. My wife Sam had a, such a tough time that people had a, a difficulty in accepting him going over to pop was because of the fact he didn't have to. Sam was making money in church as a singer, as a gospel singer. You know, they traveled uh, maybe six, seven, eight, nine months of the year and still made money. Sam could make money. And that happened with a lot of the groups. Why weren't the church and its people good enough for Sam Cooke? Jesus is the temptations of the pop side, as Donald and Joyce make clear, pulled over a lot of groups. Okay, we know about Sam Cooke, but then there was Johnny Taylor. He was with the Soul Stirrers also, and he crossed over. Again, Joyce Jackson. Lou Rawls was with the Pilgrim Travelers. Wilson Pickett, uh, coming from the Violinaires. And you had David Ruffin, coming from the Dixie Nightingales. And you have uh, Ernie Cato in New Orleans, coming from the Golden Jubilee. Johnny Adams in New Orleans, coming from the, the Consolators. 
And then, of course, I talked about the Humming Four. The whole quartet crossed over to call themselves the Hawks. And so many others. Ground zero for this moment was America's first integrated music venue, Cafe Society in New York City. You had places like the Cotton Club that would feature the best in African-American talent. But if you were black, you, you were not allowed to come and see the show. Racial segregation was a custom the owners of Cafe Society eagerly challenged, says Jerry Zoltan, a gospel music scholar at Penn State University. Cafe Society intended to turn that whole thing on its head. Not only did they feature the finest in African-American talent, but anybody could come through the door. This created a huge opportunity for the gospel soloists and quartets booked to perform. They shared stages with giants like Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, and Miles Davis. The Dixie Hummingbirds, Philadelphia's premier gospel quartet, were one of the first gospel groups invited to perform on that stage. In 1984, the Hummingbirds frontman Ira Tucker told NPR's Terry Gross that he considered the audiences at Cafe Society better sometimes than the church crowd. The people are really into it, you know. The guys say, well, I don't, I don't believe in the hereafter, but I like what you're doing, you know. And he would get into it. <laughs> but when it was over, it was over with him. <laughs> but the idea of, of the whole thing was then a matter of survival, you know, which is the same as today, you know. But uh, we changed our name to the Jericho Quintet for the clubs. Why'd you do that? We just figured that during that time, the, the gospel uh, people wasn't ready for a nightclub group. So we worked under the Jericho Quintet in, the, in Cafe Society, but back in the church, we was uh, the Dixie Hummingbirds. The Dixie Hummingbirds have stayed true to their gospel roots for more than 90 years. They'd seen how betraying their base could tear people apart. But musicians and promoters have asked them hundreds of times to consider recording secular music. This came to a head in 1973 when they received a call from singer-songwriter Paul Simon. He asked them to collaborate with him on the tune Loves Me Like a Rock. Jerry Zoltan wrote The Definitive History of the Dixie Hummingbirds. He told us about the group's discussion after the pop star's invitation. Should we do this? Is this, you know, not being true to our audience? One of the bits of advice they got was, you know, why just preach to the choir? You've already got the choir. Are there ways to reach out and get people who might not necessarily be part of the choir and bring them into the fold, so to speak. The Dixie Hummingbirds felt that uh, Loves Me Like a Rock was a song that fit the spirit of what they wanted to get across, fit the message that they felt was worthwhile getting across. And so they, they recorded Loves Me Like a Rock with Paul Simon. When I was a little boy, when I was just a boy the devil called my name. When I was just a boy, I say now, 
After all, it was a gospel song, and the money was good. The same year they recorded this version with Paul Simon. They recorded their own version and won a Grammy Award for it. Despite the high-profile collaboration, they insisted on being the same Dixie Hummingbirds with the same values they'd always held. Ira Tucker Jr. is the son of the Hummingbirds, Ira Tucker, and a current member of the group. He told us Paul Simon offered to take them on a world tour. But he had already booked these small churches in the South, and he told Paul he couldn't do it. Now, you're talking about turning down a lot of thousands. Money the group had never seen before and would never see again. But James Davis, then the leader of the group, said, I can't say no to these men. I gave them my word. So that's what I would want. Then they took a vote and everybody said, we want you what you want. Because <laughs> he knew they were going to follow because... Mr. Davis was a man, and, and all he had to do was say it. As secular record companies tempted long-running gospel groups like the Dixie Hummingbirds with the prospect of worldly rewards, some young, gifted, and black gospel singers from the get-go signed deals to sing soul music. Mitty Collier was one of them. Mitty, from Birmingham, Alabama, was one of the youngest of seven children and a musical prodigy. She was singing leads in the Baptist church her family attended when she was in elementary school. By high school, Mitty was singing blues and R&B in a local nightclub, generating an enthusiastic fan base. She was a local star by the time she enrolled at nearby Miles College. While visiting relatives in Chicago, she entered a talent show. The Al Benson talent show, which took place at the Regal Theater. Mitty Collier recalled to us her introduction to that musical show place, the pride of the city's south side. My uncle took me to that audition, and it was kind of exciting about the audition because when I auditioned singing Della Reese, I Know Someday You'll Want Me to Want You, and so when at the audition, Al Benson told everybody else, said, well, you all know you better just shoot for second and third place because you will not win first place. When she did win first place, the legendary Chicago Blues and R&B label, Chess Records, immediately made her an offer. And I actually was too young to sign the recording contract. So my mom had to come to Chicago to sign the contract for me. And he put me on the opening of one of his big shows that he produced at the Regal to, as one of the prizes that I won. 
and it was hard for me to get off of the stage on the show because everybody stuck, kept clapping and hollering and screaming for me to come back. But I made it kind of hard for them, you know, because it was real nice. Minnie landed her biggest hit with a James Cleveland gospel standard. I had a talk with God last night. Oh, yes, that she transformed into this. I had a talk with my man last night. This was in 1961. For the next seven years, she charted several Billboard hits and toured the country in showcases with singers like Gladys Knight, Jackie Wilson, and Patti LaBelle. I know when we used to travel the highway, all of us had, had top 10 records and stuff like that. But when we were on the bus, somebody would hear a gospel song and everybody on there just start background and knew it. You know, that's what we were saying. Everybody knew, knew the gospel song because everybody had come up in church and everybody would, had been singing those old gospel songs, you know. They played all the big theaters on the Chitlin circuit, the Apollo in New York, the Uptown in Philadelphia, the Howard in D.C. One month long tour nearly did Mitty in. It was very hard for me to keep up those 30 days, but I made it through and by the time I got home, I couldn't talk. Um, and I couldn't sing at all, and I was in a whisper. When she got home to Chicago, she saw a doctor because her voice had lost its golden luster. Under orders to rest, she moped around her house, waiting for it to return. One day I was just sitting there, and I could hear this voice saying, Mitty, sing. And I said, well, I can't sing, you know, just sing. Mitty, sing. And I started trying to sing, and my voice came out, and it came out kind of graspy at first. And I just started singing, Amazing grace shall always be my song of praise. And then by the time I got to the end of the verse, you could hear my voice three blocks away. It was just so phenomenal of how God had restored. I know he did it, you know, and I hurry up. After that, she performed one final R&B concert, an obligation she promised to fulfill. Then she told her manager, Henry Wynn, that she was calling it quits. That was the last performance that I did, and he let me go out on top with the act God did. When I got back home, I knew that I was done with that, and Henry would call me every day and so I said no that's just it I'm I'm done with it I'm he said you should I said yeah that's it I I said to him uh I got a new manager now and I got a story to tell and I got to tell it and that's when I started singing gospel Mitty became a pastor on the south side of Chicago to this day she sings at her church the more like Christ Christian fellowship Artists faced a tricky proposition, crossing over to or from gospel music. 
Either way, a singer could turn down money and disappoint audiences and record companies. The great soul singer Al Green, like Mitty Collier, wrestled with this at the height of his pop career in the 1970s. He described his dilemma to NPR's Fresh Air in 2000. There's such a tragic aura around great success. Sam Cooke, um, all these people. Um, there's such a, and I was afraid, Otis, the plane. Um, a plane crash killed soul singer Otis Redding when he was a 27-year-old star on tour. I would be afraid to take a chance like that. I would rather hold on to the Lord and make him and let him be the master of my life. Scores of black artists struggled with this sacred secular predicament. The problem was, perhaps, that they had to choose a side in the first place. I'm Cece Winans, and you're listening to Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, the gospel roots of rock and soul. Sam Cooke crossed from gospel to pop. The Reverend Al Green and Mitty Collier evolved from pop to gospel. Mixing the musical styles energized American culture in ways we still hear and feel. Let's return for a minute to Cafe Society on the lower west side of Manhattan. That's where black artists, working class whites, and intellectuals of many races mixed it up for entertainment with an underlying political message. It wasn't unusual to see writers like Langston Hughes and Richard Wright share a table with leaders of the NAACP and top scholars from Howard and Columbia. This was where the Dixie Hummingbirds, performing as the Jericho Quartet, perfected the uniforms and choreography that became hallmarks of their act and where singers like Lena Horne and Billie Holiday raised their artistry to new heights. Famously, it's where Holiday first performed this song about the lynching of African Americans in the South, a timeless protest anthem against American racial hatred. Southern trees bear strange fruit Blood on the leaves and blood at the root The Cafe Society was an oasis for radicals, free thinkers, and artists. Before 1941, though, audiences had never heard gospel music and spirituals like this. Sister Rosetta Tharp's powerful voice accompanied her masterful guitar playing. All we hear, church, people say, they are in this holy way. There are strange things. 
Born in Arkansas in 1915, she and her mother moved to Chicago when she was six years old. They were part of the same wave of migrants as Thomas Dorsey, the father of gospel music. Black Americans moving north in search of better lives. She was raised in the Pentecostal church. I'm going to lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside. I don't think she ever even had a chance to think about music as a choice. It was just the kind of air that she breathed or the water that she swam in. Gail Wald, who wrote the musician's biography, Shout, Sister, Shout, says that her church elders sized up her musical gifts very early. The idea of a gift was important because when people recognized you had a gift, the idea was that that gift came from God and that you had in some ways a responsibility, not only to God, but to your community to use that gift. Sister Rosetta developed her gift on the road. She and her mother traveled what the faithful called the Gospel Highway, playing tent revivals across the country. At these shows, she had to learn how to connect without amplification to large outdoor audiences. So they had to learn how to sing big and loud and couldn't rely on that microphone in front of them. But it just meant that she had to know how to use her voice that way. That was at that point a dying art for people who were going into professional music making. In 1938, when she was 23, Sister Rosetta moved to New York City, seeking the spotlight. She wanted to bring her electrified, sanctified sound to the city's nightclubs. She brought it, all right. First, she found success at the Cotton Club, where white secular audiences fell in love with the way she rocked gospel. Then, at Cafe Society, she introduced her revolutionary brand of swinging spirituals to mixed audiences. Sister Rosetta quickly landed a deal to record four songs with Decca Records, where the roster of stars featured Louis Armstrong and Billie Holiday. All four tunes were hits. One of them was Rock Me, a reinterpretation of a church spiritual. Again, Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta's biographer. If you sang Rock Me with a little bit of um, energy on the R, um, a little bit of naughty energy, then of course it could come to mean something really different or suggest something really different. Rock Me wasn't the only church song she secularized. Listen to what she did with My Lord and I. I have a friend so precious, he's so very dear to me. He loved me with such tender love, he loved me faithfully. I could not live apart from him, I love to feel him now. Oh, we dwell together. I know it's my man and I. Music historian Joyce Jackson says, unlike the Dixie Hummingbirds who could not fathom betraying their gospel roots, Sister Rosetta Tharp regarded her musical insubordination as an asset. You know, she just had no problems with that because she thought it was all music to her. And, you know, she knew, you know, she was strong in her spirituality. 
So she didn't figure that she just had to stay in one realm. We can cause somebody to come to Christ no matter where we are. Gospel music historian and producer Jerry Zoltan told us this attitude rubbed some church folks the wrong way. She began surrounding herself with musical instruments that were really, in conservative circles, considered sacrilegious. An electric guitar? That's what blues artists do, you know? A full band? Oh, you don't do that in gospel, but Sister Rosetta did, and and it, it obviously attracted a younger crowd, and it changed what gospel could be. Again, Gail Wall. I think probably even for those audiences who were um, disapproving of her choices, that there was a certain pride in watching her succeed. But it was always mixed with a sense of betrayal and why weren't we good enough and why wasn't her church and her Lord, why wasn't that good enough for her? Eventually, Sister Rosetta did decide she was straying too far from her gospel roots. She became uncomfortable performing lustful songs. So by the mid-1940s, she went back to performing mostly spiritual material with an unmatched flamboyance and ecstatic flair on the guitar. experimentation with the boundaries of gospel music made her as much a kind of early influence on rock and roll as anyone else. She becomes this symbol of possibility for female musicians who still don't get respect easily as either musicians are certainly on the quintessential like phallic instrument of rock, the guitar. Now when you see people jump from church to church. You know that that confession don't amount to much, and that's all. At the height of her fame, Sister Rosetta was sharing a concert bill with the legendary gospel singer Mahalia Jackson in Newark, New Jersey. When she heard a voice leading a quartet called the Sunset Four, that voice had her at today. Have I given anything It was the voice of the gospel singer and pianist Marie Knight. Gail Wald says Sister Rosetta just knew their voices would work together. And she approached Marie Knight, who was very young at that point, had to get permission from her mother to go on the road with Rosetta Tharp. And they ended up performing together and developing a kind of remarkable repertoire of songs together and also remarkable act as a duet that they brought on the road in the late 40s and a little bit in the early 50s. Throughout that period, they toured as a duo, riding the train, unaccompanied by men or by anyone, from New York to Detroit to San Francisco. They didn't need um, male musicians. They, they didn't have to play the roles of women singers, which was obviously a respected role, but a role that could reduce women to spectacles. So they had, I think, to me, they had an incredible self-sufficiency. Their musical partnership was thrilling and dynamic. 
They went from playing clubs and churches to headlining auditoriums and even stadiums. They scored a national hit with Didn't It Rain. Some people gossip that their partnership reached beyond music. Nobody's substantiated those rumors. Within the insular world of gospel music, many people believed homosexuality is a sin. So even if the rumors were true, these women would have wanted to beat it down because their careers and reputations depended upon it. But Gail Wald says many people who knew and worked with her were aware that Sister Rosetta loved men and women. Her unconventional choices sexually put her in a category with a lot of other women musicians then and now, that to be a woman and to choose that life of, as a musician that would have kept her on the road so much meant that she couldn't even pretend to have a conventionally defined feminine life. She married several times. Those husbands played always second fiddle to her career. She didn't have children with any of them. And I think the fact that she was living already an unconventional life gave her opportunities to express herself sexually that, that other women may not have had. In so many ways, Sister Rosetta Tharp was a self-actualized pioneer who did not care about shattering staid gospel rules. Rosetta and Marie's partnership ended in 1950. As a solo act during that decade, Sister Rosetta continued to sell out arenas. Oh, the sweet horsey. Oh, the sweet horsey. Oh, this is the wonderful time of my life. Her fame faded by the 1960s as performers, white and black, began to expand upon her style. She found new audiences in Europe who savored their first opportunity to see black American performers live on stage. When I come in on a, yeah. Let me tell you what I come in on. Back home in Philadelphia, she lived a quiet life. Reverend Joe Williams, a former member of the Dixie Hummingbirds, says he helped organize one of her final performances in the city. Matter of fact, she died a couple weeks after we did that program at 12th and Columbia, not far from here, at the Great Sound. She, I think that rockabilly, whatever you want to call it, she started all that stuff. She was 58 years old when she died in 1973. Although her name fell into the shadows of history for decades, the effect of her music never did. She influenced Elvis Presley. She influenced Johnny Cash. She influenced Little Richard. She influenced innumerable other people who we recognize as foundational figures in rock and roll. In 2018, Sister Rosetta got her propers at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That institution inducted her alongside Bon Jovi and Dara Straits. When people asked her about her music, she would say, oh, these kids, you know, in the, in the 60s, she would say, oh, these kids, you know, rock and roll, that's just sped up. 
like a lot of people said, this is just sped up rhythm and blues. It's not. I've been doing that forever. You know, if they wanted to call it rock and roll, that was fine with her. It was kind of like, if that's what you want to call me, as long as you're hearing me, that's fine. I'm happy with that. Sister Rosetta Tharp was heard. Although her fierce forms of self-expression pushed back against what some people thought gospel music should be, she remained committed to the church until she died. In church, after all, people first encouraged her to pick up a guitar. Her headstone reads, she would sing until you cried, and then she would sing until you danced for joy. Next time. The song stopped playing every hour on the hour. Oh, happy day. People were calling me and saying, Dot, I heard you singing. And I was like, no, you didn't. This hour of Saturday night and Sunday morning, The Gospel Roots of Rock and Soul was written and produced by Alex Lewis. For more stories, visit our website at xpngospelroots.org. The Gospel Roots of Rock and Soul has been supported by the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage. The executive producers are Roger LeMay and Bruce Warren. Senior producer, Alex Lewis. Assistant producer, Whitney Jones. Editor, Cheryl Duvall. Mixing by Jeff Town. Our production assistant is Rachel Ishikawa. Archival audio courtesy of NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, the Studs Turco Radio Archive, the Library of Congress, and Seattle Pacific University. Special thanks to Ann Powers, Robert Marovich, Jerry Zoltan, and Donald Dumpson. I'm Cece Winans. Thanks for listening. The Gospel Roots of Rock and Soul is presented in collaboration with NPR Music and is produced in Philadelphia by WXPN at the University of Pennsylvania.